Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. So this week, myself and guest host Tarun Shitra chat with Jang Yen about math competitions, how crypto is like alchemy, and his work on the Gasper paper. Before we start in, I want to mention that I'm currently looking for someone to help me out on all things ZK. That is this, the ZK podcast, the ZK study club, the upcoming ZK summit, meetups that I have planned for the summer kind of all the other things around zero knowledge, as well as the ZK Validator. Now, I don't know if you've heard about the ZK Validator. It's a validator that is currently validating on Cosmos and Kusama. Very soon it will be on Polkadot. And the purpose of this validator is to promote privacy and zero knowledge technology on the networks that we work with. In general, there's a lot of things going on. And I want to open the door to other motivated people who might want to come join in and work on these with me. So if you're looking to connect with the ecosystem, to learn more, to potentially get involved in the research, and especially if you are very organized and have some experience producing either events, content, or generally organizing people in the past, please drop me a line. I'm looking for somebody to join on a part-time basis to start, but this could be expanded out as the work increases. I've added an email in the show notes. You can also tweet at me if you already have that contact. If you see this as an opportunity, you think you might be the right candidate, please do get in touch. So now here's our episode with Jang Yen and guest host Tarun Shitra. So today I'm here with guest host Tarun. Hi, Tarun. Hey. How's it going? <laughs> Good. Happy to be back cool. on my second, second guest host. Thank you for joining again. So today we plan on kind of going deeper on the math behind consensus, and we're going to focus on the Gasper paper, at, which is an instantiation of Casper. Now, if you've not listened to our episode with Itai on consensus algorithms, that might actually be worth doing before this episode, but because I believe we're going to be referencing that quite a bit. And I'll add the link to that in the show notes. So today's guest is Jang Yen, who's the professor at San Jose State University in the math and stats department and a consultant for the Ethereum Foundation, as well as one of the co-authors of the Gasper paper. So welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Happy to be invited. So Yen, I think as a starting point, it would be really great to hear from you what first got you interested in this field and kind of what led you to this, this kind of paper that you've recently contributed to. Yeah, awesome. I never actually thought I was going to do crypto, actually. If there's a source, what happened was I took crypto as a minor during grad school at MIT because you're supposed to have a major and two minors. And I was mostly a pure mathematician, but I really liked the crypto course by Sylvia McCauley. And then I liked it so much that when I was be trying to become an actual grad student by taking our hell calls, which are like this three-hour oral, I asked Shafi Goldwasser to be my examiner. She basically kicked my ass on the calls by, I don't want to miss, I don't want to misquote her, but I think she put a problem on the board that she didn't like totally solve and she just wanted to see how I react to it. I got owned by it so hard that after the calls, I was asking her, how the hell are you supposed to do that? And she was like, eh, the thing you tried is okay. This might probably work, whatever. But anyway, I like really fell in love with, um, crypto, but I never wrote a paper on it because just a minor subject. My major is actually like, 
combinatorics and discrete math. You got like a mysterious, you got an unsolvable crypto problem. Like, a, oh, yeah. yeah. There's like something very like meta ironic about that. Yeah. Crypto, <laughs> cryptographic problem or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, that left a good memory because it was like, you know, fun problems and the kind of thing I really liked thinking about, even though I ended up doing pure math kind of mostly. So, Flash forward like ten or twenty years, or I forget how old I am at times. You know, how, you know how these things go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I run. Uh, one of the things I care a lot about is I, I run a summer camp for gifted youth, and then what I do is I sometimes we invite speakers there, and then you know I made some friendships that way. And then one of those one of those friends later was like, "Hey, you you know like you might be good for this crypto stuff," and I didn't really think about it too much because to me it was really just the whole oh bitcoin is a scam kind of view that a lot of academics who are like allergic to stuff like that had at the time but i actually really like new fields um yeah so when i saw um there was this talk a really great talk by ali brahimi who was talking about how machine learning was like alchemy um that really struck a chord with me because you know, I think that's where interesting science actually happens because that's really the start of something great. And then everyone's doing stupid things, but, you know, trying to figure out something good. So that part attracted me about crypto. So then I got in touch with the Ethereum Foundation through the friend. And then I've been kind of doing work there by both helping them run these workshops where we focus on theoretical problems, which I think I invited Tarun to one. And that's actually how we how we met. Because I think there's a lot of good, valuable math problems in crypto. And then at the same time, the Ethereum Foundation was kindly enough to support me at my university, which is not one of these elite research universities, mind you, just like very normal state kids, but kids with a lot of, with a lot of life to them, very authentic people, um, to do research with a bunch of undergrads and grad students. So the Gasper paper was actually one of these projects that Ethereum helped fund. So that's like the, this thing called a Camcos program, and I helped direct that at SJSU. So the Gasper project was like this collaboration between Vitalik, Danny from Ethereum, me, and like six of my undergrad students. Cool. So, you know, there's a lot of cool teaching of like these people who are completely new to the thing. And, and I'm actually working on another project Another campus project right now, which is on the proof of custody game. So the game theory layer for data availability in the ETH 2.0 sharding. So that's actually the problem that's been occupying my mind space here. This is also an excuse if I forget Gasper stuff as we talk. <laughs> my mind is somewhere else. Okay. But, uh, hopefully, you know, actually, we, hopefully at the end, we can, we can dig into that as well. I'd be super curious to hear what you're thinking about on that. Yeah, I would love, I would love to talk about that at the end. But yeah, so that's kind of the long, like, circuitous route in that, yeah, I work on technically on these projects that I think helps the Ethereum Foundation. And on an organizational level, I'm playing some sort of ambassador role between Ethereum, but also like, you know, theoretical mathematicians, many of whom are my friends, just to tell them, hey, I know there's a lot of bullshit out there in the space, but there are some real problems. And like, what can we make progress on? So that's been um, that's been really fun. OK, for that one, I also need to shout out to the Stanford um, Center for Blockchain Research um, with Byron and Dan Bonet, and because, you know, they're good people who do good work. Cool. Another interesting thing is that you have worked in other forms of alchemy. 
like this Adrinkas type of stuff. Yeah, so yeah, may, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you should also mention that you've worked, you your other forms of alchemy, you've kind of worked a little bit in string theory type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that's, yeah, let me, let me talk about that for a little bit. Um, so for example, my PhD thesis was actually not an extension of my advisor's research direction. What happened was my advisor, the great combinatorialist Richard Stanley, gave me some problems and I made zero progress on some of them and some decent progress on others. I, I mean, I wrote at least one paper on combinatorics during grad school, thank God, maybe even two or three. There was a visiting f um, physicist from Brown, Sylvester Gates, who had this kind of half-formed problem in his mind, would physics speak, which means, of course, none of the mathematicians in the department understood it, but this is the stuff I like. I like things that are not yet defined well, and especially given in kind of like what mathematicians would call crank-like language of their original fields, impure, raw. So I like that stuff. So I like, I think I took his raw stuff and really tried to listen and empathize with the way physicists thought instead of forcing a math thing on it. And then tried to translate that to a mathematical language, um, which I helped do and improved a lot of structural and enumerative theorems about it, like did combinatorics on it. So that was my thesis. I think that's representative of what I mean when I um, like this alchemy stuff because I like taking what is like a very raw field, but extract some math from it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think historically, actually, there's been a lot of success, a lot of kind of the edge case success in, in math in particular has come from people who've done this kind of translating alchemy into chemistry type of work. You know, there was, you know, Witten winning field mm. medal for, for really the Morse theory type of stuff. There was a lot of uh, stuff in theoretical CS some, something super interesting about kind of your career trajectory is it, there's been a lot of people who, when they've taken kind of the career risk of having random, uh, many different uh, narratives and not a single narrative, uh, they have been kind of successful in math. But one of the interesting things I think that happens is is that like people aren't quite encouraged at a young age necessarily to do do that type of stuff. I think, especially in math, if you look at the way mentorship works, at a young age, people, you know, either do contests or they're kind of given these combinatorial problems and there's kind of a tutelage that gets you to, to go down a certain direction and not really take these kind of big risks. So given that you spend a lot of time mentoring students, especially students who might have a lot of math aptitude, but might be like, oh, crypto is alchemy. Like, how could I do that? It'll like put me on the wrong trajectory. How do you kind of treat mentorship with students, especially if, as you steer them towards things that I think are at least from the academic side, viewed as a little bit uh, odd, odd, unusual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's which, a super which most of cryptocurrency question. is. <laughs> I mean, I myself went through the, I would say, the contest pipeline. I was pretty successful in that. And I mentored a lot of kids who are very strong at contests. So I kind of know what you mean. Um, well, I think the first thing is, uh, you know, it's going to be me being a little bit moralistic. I think it's super important not to proselytize a field or a particular direction of research. Even though I like crypto, I try to first select for people who would like crypto. Uh, I think because like if you try to proselytize, you're gonna start like emphasizing things that are not the emphasis. And that's that's what happens in academia. You have this like weird competition of people for for talent, but you're like blowing up the benefits of your field. Whereas a lot of fields are just people playing with math puzzles <laughs> for yeah. the most part, just different kind of math puzzles. So I think what I do is I really try to select for students. Um, and if, 
isn't a contest where the students don't even know what they're interested in, then I really try to look at their personalities and be like, you like computation. So why don't you write some code that will like look at, that will simulate, um, this part of the process. So that's what happened with one subgroup of the kids I was working on at this paper. They weren't really into the consensus theory, but they liked programming. So instead of forcing them to learn all that stuff, I'm like, well, why don't you run a simulation of things we're talking about? And that will help you learn our stuff. So there's just a lot of, uh, I think being a good mentor is, um, really about finding what the person is actually truly interested in and matching that up with what they like, as opposed to just try to say, it's only moral for you now to learn cryptocurrencies for the next two years or something. Cause yeah. that, that creates like bad incentives. I think. I think, I think that's a really good point. Actually, this, this fact that, you know, there's unfor- unfortunately, there's almost like a sales pitch that goes along with yeah. recruiting to your department or recruiting to your company. I mean, obviously, but that means you might be overselling and it might not attract the actual people who could be genuinely passionate about that thing. I do a lot of mentorship where on one day I'm telling a kid to go to grad school and on another day I'm telling a different kid to stay the hell away from grad school because, you know, there are personality differences. So yeah. I completely agree with you. And sort of, I think um, some some of the work you've been doing with the EF, especially kind of these these workshops, uh, that, that's kind of brought together a lot of people from, from different backgrounds um, to work on sort of the big problems that haven't totally been solved yet so how, how did you how do you you know how do you structure these things there, there's this element of a hackathon to them and there's also an element of like not quite a math contest it's a, it's not like as intense but there is like kind of a little bit of that element um you know how, how do you think about doing that and how do you how do you pick problems for that uh how do you you know yeah just like walk us through your mental process for that because i think it's a very unique thing to have a hackathon for doing research because that that I think I've never seen that mm. it really in any other field. No, thanks for even saying it that way because that makes a lot that means a lot to me. Like I really want to try to design something that's good and kind of unique. First of all, credit goes where credit is due. That would not be possible without Albert Nee from the Ethereum Foundation, um, Alex Yen, who's like a really awesome value adder who helps us um, organize those events, and like I said, the Stanford. Center for Blockchain Research. Um, so, and my involvement, which is mostly kind of this planning the research topics, things like that. I think the biggest thing I try to do is because I'm kind of away from the hype. Like I sometimes don't even know, oh, where, what are the cool, sexy new crypto that's coming out? I just, you, I use say Albert's network, right? And then I tap into kind of a bunch of people who are working on different mathematical things in the space. And I just kind of ask them, okay, what is the real math here? Like, don't sell me your coin. <laughs> like, like what, what's the math problem? And that gives me kind of a kind of top down view on things, which I, again, I really don't think I'm an expert at. They're just like entire subfields I haven't touched. Right. But, um, once I get enough broad base of that, I can start designing a kind of a program like, Okay, these are some good topics, you know, with lots of good feedback from Albert and obviously other people I talk to, like, um, you know, in the Ethereum Foundation or out. And then we just try to really bring a program where we're work oriented. And that philosophy really came from, it's a kind of an anti example. I looked at mathematical conferences and I decided 
let's think about what is boring and don't do that. <laughs> is that let's do what's really good, which is when, when is a math conference good? Is when you meet a friend you like yeah. working on a problem and you sneak out from the math conference to work on it together over coffee on the table outside while the speaker is talking inside. Yeah. So if you look at that and you're like, how could I extract a model from it? I think the right model to extract is why don't you just minimize talking and make more time for people to work with each other through coffee. And that's kind of like how this structurally forms. And obviously I have a lot of kind of, um, of some organizational experience there from running, say, the summer camp for gifted students that translates well into this. I basically treat all these adults as students. Like, how do I keep them engaged? Well, I keep them engaged by letting them drive their own exploration instead of being forced to listen to what someone else is doing on their research. And that's, I think, kind of the 80% of how those workshops are run. Like, I've been trying to come up with a concept for, like, a zero-knowledge research thing so I do the ZK Summit, mm. but that's an event. That's a, you know, that's a presentation right. and it's an event. But I really wanted to, I've been actually like thinking about doing some sort of research weekend or two day thing, a bit like a hackathon. But the problem with trying to put the hackathon models, you can't necessarily build that much yet with like zero knowledge proof systems. <laughs> like you, you can't build little yeah. products that you could demo. So... Well, one beauty of having a young field is you get plausible deniability in that since it's young and like possibly deep, even learning is like a successful outcome. Yeah. And I think that's true of our workshops too. I don't want to pretend we solve all these big problems. We make some good progress on some problems and find good translations. But one big outcome is you just have a lot of people who know crypto coming in and they teach a lot of things to these really smart people that don't know crypto and that's a win so i think if you frame your kind of zk research thing as a learning slash research experience that opens it up a little bit also like these days i think there's a lot of creativity you can do like maybe it should be done over a discord server right because we probably want to virtualize totally. some stuff knowing that yeah. we have the freaking pandemic <laughs> out there so uh, i think that actually opens up your space of exploration and so. yeah and you know seriously if you want to pursue that feel free to send me like a telegram or something. I might even be able to help cool. you design it with some cycles. All right, yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> you yeah. might be doing a research project, a research weekend. So I guess to, to kind of move a little bit from the workshops to, to the Gasper paper, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think an interesting thing about having these kind of research hackathons is you end up making a lot of non-peer-reviewed research Yes. Um, and I think the cryptocurrency space in particular has been want of of really doing this a uh, large amount of non-peer-reviewed research. I think there are times it's been extremely beneficial. It got the message out quite quickly, you know, sort of sort of a, akin to the Poincaré conjecture proof. But at the same time, it it also has led to like a lot of nonsense that's come out too, right? So, you know, as you've worked on this paper, you kind of were able to take things from these types of in-person events and take a bunch of people who have worked on these problems and condense them into something that ostensibly could become a peer-reviewed paper. So how do you view the role of peer review uh, in the cryptocurrency space? And sort of how did you, how do you view this, the Gasper paper as an example of that? Because it, it, it's quite, a, quite an interesting paper because the first half of the paper is almost like a review meant for people who are not in cryptocurrency or distributed systems to be able to read it. Um, and I think that, that there, there's right. this kind of line between 
proving theorems and giving kind of a big description that you're trying to walk there. So, so yeah, what, what role does peer review play in this? Well, first of all, I'm lucky to be uh, working at SJSU and not at, like, say, one of the elite R1s where I had my training because I'm, I'm going to get a little bit political. And <laughs> for, I hate peer review <laughs> as a system. Uh, let's, just, let's just stick with that. I think, I think it tries to do something good, but in practice, it, it doesn't work. Um, that, that aside, um, I think crypto should not do peer review because in crypto, the, you guys move way too quickly. And like a peer review system is just not going to catch up to that. In fact, this is, this is like a meta consensus problem, right? <laughs> it's like, there's a lot of things come out. Do you guys want to optimize for, for safety or, or liveness? I think crypto should optimize for liveness. And if you look at that from a kind of like this consensus analogy, I think more things should come out um, without review. And then things should be eliminated kind of very quickly based on how useful it is. And maybe more harshly. I think this is the tricky thing because there's a lot of marketing around some really bad ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how do you cut through that quickly? Right. So so that's the hard part. And I think right now people have been doing that through just people are kind of doing a proof of work or proof of status or something. People just like build on the things that come in first, which is why Bitcoin and Ethereum has, you know, all the share, right? Um, I actually think this will probably work fine for a while. And it might be, I obviously have ideas on like how this, this will change as crypto gets bigger and bigger, but I don't want to expound too much on my meta econ speculations <laughs> or whatever. But I, I literally think peer review, adding peer review would be, would slow down the field. Um, and it's probably not a smart thing to do right now for crypto. Interesting. Let's move on to Gasper. Which is a combination, yeah. uh, a combination of the word ghost and Casper, I guess. But maybe you can tell me briefly, like, what is it exactly? Right. So, yeah, like you said, Casper um, is really just a combination of these two ideas. Uh, one is Casper FFG and one is ghost. So um, ghost is a four choice rule that was originally introduced by Sapolipsy and Zohar, but really brought into the crypto space with uh, Vlad Zamfir when he was looking for like a correct by construction um, consensus protocol. So the quick overview is a four choice rule is a way that users of a blockchain decide what is the right chain to build on. And kind of a very natural four choice rule to think of inspired by um, Bitcoin is something like the fork with the most weight or the most work on it, uh, or sometimes it's called the longest or the heaviest chain. So the short of it is the LMD ghost, where LMD means latest um, message driven, and, and that's the, the version of ghost we use. LMD ghost is just, imagine that um, when you look at kind of this this tree with all the forks in it, if you just took the latest message of every single user of the blockchain, um, in this case, validator, so the, the users with some weight, um, and every time you're at a fork, you always fork towards the branch where most, where, where you have the heaviest sum of the latest messages, um, of the users. And the way you think about a message is 
maybe everybody has like a stamp of their latest message and at any given time their stamp is somewhere they may later change this stamp by moving it somewhere else but you always look at kind of the latest stamps that everybody has so if there's n of us there's exactly n stamps and you mm-hmm. just always move towards the fork with the most stamps the other thing that we use here is casper ffg uh, which is this friendly finality gadget the way that works is it's designed to be a layer of finalization on top of a chain-like protocol, um, I- including a four-choice rule. So, for example, um, LMD Ghost. But the main ideas of Casper FFG is that each block kind of has a height, depending on their distance from the genesis block. And every height of 100, you should think of it as a checkpoint. You might hear people say words like epic. And this is like a very common word right like now. Is it like epoch? Epoch, epoch, Like it was an O, right? I'm bad at yeah. English. No, yeah. <laughs> no stress. <laughs> right. So uh, it will allow you to define certain checkpoints to be justified, which is one level of confidence, or finalized, which is the next and highest level of confidence. And this is very similar to how in PBFT you have these different rounds, right? You like mm. pre-commit and then you like commit and stuff like that. So here... Things that with enough kind of votes are just checkpoint blocks with enough votes are justified. And then the next, and then there's a, like, there's like a technical condition and the next layer of justified becomes finalized. So basically Casper gives you a guarantee that if you satisfy assumptions, you'll never have a situation where two finalized blocks are in conflict with each other. Mm. So I think that's the most useful thing to say about these two things. The rest are like technical details. We did talk about, I mean, we we talked about Casper in the context of all these consensus algorithms back in that episode that I mentioned earlier. Um, and we, you know, we, we we mentioned it, but we didn't really dig that deep into it. Um, it's a, it's like a proof of stake consensus algorithm, as far as I understand. It's a, I it's, think Casper, and first of all, again, there's two Caspers, right? Cause there's kind of Velaz like proof by, cons- correct by construction, um, thing. This is Casper FFG that we're talking about. So friendly finality gadget. So I think like the technical term is Casper is a finality gadget, which means it's a thing uh, Casper is like a meta protocol. Like I said, it's not a complete protocol. It basically takes an underlying blockchain protocol, which could actually be proof of stake or proof of work, by the way. Um, and it kind of tells you how to define blocks as being final. So Casper gives you a definition of if you have a blockchain, right, with some rules, if you put Casper on it, what it means is it gives you a definition of certain blocks as absolutely final, which means like unless, you know, there's a huge attack on the network, everybody could be sure that if in their views, these blocks fall under the definition of final, then those we can be like 100% sure. So so Casper is like this thing you layer on top of a blockchain. And that's why it's not like a total pro- protocol by itself. But this is why you hug it with the ghost because ghost gives you a rule for exactly how um, things go at the lowest levels. And then you have this kind of complete protocol. So before that, Casper was only describing part of a consensus algorithm then, right? Like it's right. missing yeah. like it's missing that ghost part. Yeah, the G is literally a gadget. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing you like plug on. It's like an accessory. It's like a very big accessory, but it's an accessory. What's, a, what's an alternative to ghost? Is there something else that's used instead? 
sometimes? So, for example, I think there's a version of the world where we can use like just a longest chain rule instead of、oh, yeah. ghost because that's also a fork. Four choice rule, and you can put Casper on that. And obviously, the other things that are missing is you can do a longest chain, but you can still theoretically do it with proof of work or proof of stake, right? So you have to specify the underlying like Sybil resistance algorithm. But once you have all that down, I think there's another world where Casper is literally that rule plus、um, the Casper FFG. Is there anything other than longest chain and ghost for like? Is there any other alternatives? Actually, there's a very recent paper that classifies all possible fork choice rules by two probabilists,、um, Amir Dembo and、uh, Ofer Zaytouni, which I forget the name of the the first part of the the paper, but the last part of the paper is Nakamoto always wins. But basically,、mm-hmm. it it compares all different fork choice rules and shows that their resistance to selfish mining is optimal for longest chain. Even though, even though, like you can get faster latency. So, what, a little bit of background on like why Ghost was invented in 2015, because actually this is this paper is what made me get interested in cryptocurrencies again. Oh, cool! I, I have a lot of very、uh, warm feelings about about the Ghost paper because、um, it was probably the first rigorous probability that existed in crypto. Most of the other stuff in crypto was a lot of nonsense、um, and misuses <laughs> of Poisson distributions、um, in the <laughs> beginning. Like, I mean, the Bitcoin paper makes some errors in the in, in some so certain things, right? But but the idea is that longest chain is great, but you kind of have to wait for a while. You can't make the block production rate really fast because if you make the block production rate really fast, you're going to have a ton of forks. Because there's going to, you know, the, the easier it is to produce blocks, which you have to have happen for a, a fast block production rate, the more forks you're going to have, and you're going to have more conflicts. So, in order for the longest chain to be, you know, to have this high probability of you being able to pick the unique best chain, you you kind of have to make it slow. So, Ghost was a way of saying, hey, instead of walking down the chain and picking the longest chain, you. You 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 go, you go down the chain. You say which one is actually the heaviest. Which one has the most forks? And in some sense, what that let you trade off is you were able to get higher latency. You could handle more forking or lower latency. Sorry, so you could handle more blocks per second, but、um, you were still able to like guarantee that the network was still safe. I would say that paper was really the first paper that really investigated the safety and liveness of, of Bitcoin in a in a a, re- a more rigorous manner. And the, this the study of fork choice rules. Basically, it's it's taken a long time to actually formalize what it means to be a good fork choice rule or a bad fork choice rule.、Um, there's there's a lot of historical context to、uh, to why this this like ghost and and longest chain are like on two ends of the spectrum, and you can parameterize all fork choice rules in between them. Right. So I think that's what like why like if you want to think about fork choice rules, longest chain and ghost are kind of the two things you think about because everything else is almost like a feels like a derivative of that. I will. I would still like to add that I think there's just lots of ways to do crypto or consensus that's not about chains, right? Like you can think of there's like DAG approaches, like you know hash graph and stuff like that. And I feel like sometimes thinking in terms of chains like、uh, constrains our thinking space a little bit too much. You know, there's probably an alternative world where like. Casper was combined with those things instead, even though Casper has an underlying chain.、Mm. The ideas of Casper are really ideas from this like PBFT stuff.、Mm-hmm. So 
if you think of Casper as coming out from there, there's all these other combinations that could have happened in the world of crypto. We're just kind of seeing one of the timelines playing out, and let's just hope it's like not the darkest timeline. <laughs> With when when kind of comparing Casper to other PBFT consensus algorithms, like where does it fall on the scale of like synchronous and asynchronous? Like how does it sort of deal with, like does does the ghost part of it, is that the solution to like where it falls? Because in a way that's like the fork selection rule or is it a separate timing thing? I think the fact that we have Casper means that you're forced to be in this like partial synchrony situation because I think Casper really depends on that. Uh, and this was like written explicitly in the original Casper paper because, you know, it has this concept of checkpoints. That's the main thing that Casper brings is, you know, you, you have this chain based blockchain on the bottom, but every 100 block or so we have an, a checkpoint. Mm -hmm. A lot of the Casper guarantees, I think, come from this partial synchrony assumption that, you know, if you wait for a couple of checkpoints, nothing terribly bad could go wrong. And, and this is the kind of thinking that I think leads to to the partial synchrony as the, the resulting as the, model. As the choice. Yeah, I, I, one thing I would add is, uh, you know, I think things like ghost are just optimizations to change the partial synchrony constant, like how yes. much latency you can tolerate. Um, That's helpful, actually. That's sort of what I was trying to understand. It was like, how do they fit into where it falls? And I mean, is it possible to compare Casper to Tenderman in terms of like, I don't know if it, like, to me, there's like this scale, right? There's like the synchronous and asynchronous and partial synchronous that have different security versus timeliness or something. Like, on one side, it's going to go. I, I think, I think, I think that the, the, if I, if I, if I'm kind of getting where you're going at is, you know, in Tendermint, you have basically deterministic finality because it is just a normal BFT protocol. It's just that you, you select the people that you need to, have a committee with by stake. Whereas in Casper, this there's this notion of probabilistic finality, very similar to Bitcoin or Nakamoto, where there's, you know, you you have to you have to come up with a more probabilistic definition of what it means for finality. And so I think Casper is interesting because it it comes up with a probabilistic definition of finality, like, oh, this transaction has made it into the ledger and stays in the ledger forever that is both different from tendermint and different from nakamoto mm. yeah and so yeah maybe maybe it would be good to know like how did you guys choose the definitions of of safety and and, and liveness for your protocol because i think one of the things we've seen a lot in the last couple of years is that people have started changing the definition from the original sort of PBFT definitions. They've been kind of mutating the definitions and you have to play with the definitions to give you this kind of relaxed version of safety and liveness. Right. So one thing I did realize when we started on this project was kind of this disconnect between different types of people defining safety and liveness. So for me as a default, because, you know, Casper FFG was already kind of defined. I kind of built upon like Vitalik's intuition to use those definitions. But yeah, when you compare with the other stuff that's out there, people might use slightly different terms to describe things. Yeah, I, I think something that, that confuses people, especially if you haven't spent a long time reading the literature and noticing that it's mutated over the since 2015. <laughs> um, the, the way to think about it is like, 
you know, Byzantine fault tolerance, 80s, Flamport, you know, like kind of traditional deterministic consensus. Nakamoto, probabilistic consensus. And in probabilistic consensus, you need to take the definitions that you have of like what it means to be safe, like transaction makes in the ledger stays there forever. And live, I can keep accepting new transactions. You have to mutate them so that there's some probability of failure. Hmm. So like you could, it's small and you can tune it to be so small that it's less than the number of particles in the universe or something. But you, you have to mutate those deterministic definitions to have this probabilistic nature. And then after that, you know, once people started realizing how, how you, if you mutate the definitions, you can get better engineering properties. Then you got this huge burst of like tons of different definitions of safety and liveness. Like Avalanche uses a different definition. Um, Casper uses a different definition. So I think by default, we used um, the terms Vitalik had when he was thinking about safety or liveness um, in the original Casper paper, but at the end of the Gasper paper, we do some comparisons. It's like it's like very shallow, but you know, a, fairly broad with the other stuff that's out there, like you know, Tenderman, Definity, and stuff like that. Um, where we, where yeah, I did see kind of different, slightly different uses of safety and liveness come up. Um, as for as for choice of choosing one over the other, I don't think I did a very principled view on that. Although I would say one of the main meaty parts of the Gasper paper is this definition of probabilistic liveness, which again probably has been, appeared in other papers under some form. But, you know, there's this like, we, we do a proof similar to Casper for liveness, but we also have a very long and involved proof on probabilistic liveness, which is in some sense a harder problem because you need to have a model of what kind of things could happen. There was a point brought up earlier about how these different kind of fork rules are just to take care of different kinds of latency or behavior. And if you want to make a principled analysis, you need some distribution on in real life, how often do people fork, right? Mm. Or how often do people do the wrong thing? Because like, if no one ever forks, then <laughs> you don't need a fork choice rule, for example. So, um, but that's a statement about the world. That's not a statement about your protocol. So you, you need some assumption on what happens in the real world to do a principled comparison. And I think that's why it's, you don't see a lot of math on that because these assumptions can create like, you know, arbitrarily weird graphs and it might be hard to mathematically summarize one with the other. So we make a particular such guess. Is this because there is just not, that data just doesn't exist? Like there, there just hasn't been, it hasn't existed long enough or there's not enough forks or what's the... Well, I think it's not just a data problem. It's just also like, you know, you can define kind of a really hard process and it might just end up being something too ugly for you to think about, right? Like, um, the thing that this reminds me of is there's this thing called the Chinese restaurant process from computer science, which is you have a bunch of tables and then people come in and then they decide where to sit. And where they sit depends on how many people are already at that table. So they might go to a new table with probability one over n plus one or join an existing table with probability proportional to the number of people at that table. So you can imagine doing something like that for blockchain, which is like some guy will come and fork with some probability or join an existing thing with some probability. And it might be really hard to formally um, analyze. Your point about there being data or not, that actually helps a lot too, because if crypto was an older subject, we could say if we just backfit a model into these mm-hmm. things, things look like this model. But we don't know that. We just have a bunch of little chains kind of trying their own thing. So anything you need to try is 
stealing Tarun's words, some bad first order approximation with Poisson distributions. <laughs> and, and, and that's why I didn't want to go too overboard with the probability stuff in Gasper, because we make some kind of assumptions. You know, if you make too much, you end up in this, I think, failure mode that certain fields like econ has, which is you, you try too hard to make assumptions about what the real world is without seeing it. And then you might just end up proving these things that are of no relevance when, when you hit real life. Hmm. So we're trying to avoid that basically. Yeah. I mean, another, another question uh, in this regard is there, there have been multiple definitions of probabilistic liveness. So for instance, avalanche has a certain definition, I guess, definity, it's like DKG type of things have a certain definition. So right now, everyone in cryptography and, and distributed systems is focused so much on this model freeness, like the notion of a Byzantine adversary versus an, versus an honest adversary is very model free. You kind of say Byzantine adversary can do anything. Honest adversary doesn't do anything other than exactly what the protocol says. But in reality, neither of those two parties exist, right? Like everyone is someone somewhere in the middle. Every participant in a cryptocurrency system or a distributed blockchain system is rational to some degree. Um, and so the question is more like, okay, do you gain a lot of benefits from maybe adding some model specificity in the same way that machine learning actually gains some benefits from that? Uh, and, and maybe, you know, especially when thinking about liveness, because as you pointed out, liveness is, is the property I think that cryptocurrencies have a huge advantage over traditional databases on. So yeah, this is my speculation hat and not my mathematician hat. But I would say if I were to make a prediction here, it would be similar to the finance space in the following way. Like we might make stronger assumptions and thus stronger modeled assumptions about like how people might behave. Just as like, you know, we introduced this stuff like Edo calculus or like Brownian motion uh, when people were studying finance back around 2008. And obviously, the, there's a cost, there's a gain and a loss. The gain is, I think you do just get a better predictions than a total model free thing. But the loss is as these models get harder, it'll be harder to figure out where they go wrong. And then hopefully we don't have a big fallout like 2008 where, you know, like that, that's a very different mechanism. That's a lot of people doing automated algorithms on, on groupthink with particular um, fit models causing like this correlated failure. Um, but I think it will definitely be true that more and more experts will enter crypto. These experts may make a local living out of using kind of a more or less model free approach mm. that ekes out some actual value. But and then eventually the field is going to calcify a little bit in that way as we start to hit the limits of what their model can do and hit their blind spots. So I expect this kind of cyclic output. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just drawing the parallels to machine learning because I, I think we we saw the same thing happen yep. before where like there was this machine learning and finance have very crypto, no matter how much it says it wants to be uncorrelated from the the, the past mistakes, I think does actually uh, share a lot of these properties when it comes to modeling stuff where like everyone wants to make the most general model, but the most general model doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. And then people start making an overly specific model. And the only specific model works, but then it, it's very brittle. Like it, 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 some edge condition happens. March 12th happens. And yeah, the more precise up. your model, the more brittle it is. Yeah, and so there's kind of this trade-off. So that I, I think that's what these probabilistic liveness type of assumptions kind of are getting at. 
mm. this trade-off surface between. And that's like the difference between deterministic consensus, like in, mm-hmm. in, in PBFT and kind of these crypto consensus that has probabilistic failures, but you can kind of tune them. Yeah. Um, how you tune them is, is, is more broadly this question of gener- generosity versus specificity. But in the, in the um, case of this particular work, what, like one of the questions I have for it is like, what did it, what did it do exactly? Like what was the, what did it, how did it move the needle from what already existed? That's a really good question. Um, and just to dig into the paper a little bit. Like, one, I think, um, it's just good when a proof of concept, like, becomes kind of more complete proof of concept, because there was actually no blockchains built on Casper FFG, um, besides the fact that it got, you know, pretty locally famous within the ETH community as, oh, this is one way we can build forward. Mm-hmm. So Casper is at least like a real plan for that. And, Currently going forward, I think, you know, I would say phase two or three of ETH 2.0 is when this stuff should be completely actually inside the specs, um, in particular the specs for the beacon chain, because the shard chains, I think, do something slightly different. But like the beacon chain stuff will be based on Gasper. So I think the, the main benefit is now there's like an actual theoretic, theoretic design that the, those specs could be based on. So that's at least of, I think, local interest to the Ethereum community. And I feel the other good thing about it, too, is with these analyses of, say, the probabilistic liveness, and there's also a section on what happens with dynamic validator sets. It's not as like deep as I want, but I think it does a, a good job as like a first pass. We at least have kind of informal writing some of the ideas that has been kind of floating around the space or Vitalik's brain like you know he has some ETH research posts on various things in fact the dynamic validator set thing was interesting because he had a post on this um, I think there was like a slight mistake in one of them and then we kind of patched that up but like now we just have like this additional assurance that like okay this at least on a on a in the big picture works so uh, it gives kind of this level of confidence we have that at least humans like myself have looked at this and be like, okay, this works for the most part. And there's actually an exciting thing that's not mentioned in the paper, which is like, you know, there are these guys runtime verification, yeah. right? Um, they have actually go- gone ahead and done like kind of a formal verification of this, of many pieces of this paper. Oh, and cool. I don't know if they have, they're going to talk about that, uh, I don't know, kind of like the we, publicity. We of did that. an episode on formal verification. I know some of the f- uh, runtime verification folks. Yeah, just from they seem like great around. people. Yeah, yeah, but that's a, that's interesting that that sort of comes back in. But it's it's like they've done formal verification on pieces. This is what you're saying, like things that already existed. I guess that means you don't have to do formal verification on those again. <laughs> They're sort of in particular. Or... I think the part that I looked at was they literally took some theorems from the Gasper paper and is like. They were basically checking us, right? It's like, okay, well, this part's going to work. <laughs> and in fact, I think that they're going to go try to go above and beyond that because they're working with the more directly like the Ethereum code base. So I think they're not only checking this paper, but maybe po- some implementations or definitions of these things in the actual specs. Interesting. Um, so I, I look forward to seeing more of their work. Cool. One thing you said was that the, this work wouldn't necessarily be used on the shards, but rather on the beacon chain. Yes. How exactly, like, how exactly does it fit into the beacon chain? I'm trying to picture, 
like and and we did do some episodes on the beacon chain but i maybe even need a little bit of a refresh on like what the beacon chain does and how this would actually fit into that sure um the sharding model as far as i know is you have this main chain the beacon chain and all the data and the transactions are on these shard chains so what the beacon chain does is the beacon chain is save the data on the beacon chain are like these interactions with it and the shard chain like oh, this shard chain has this data with this root of the new data. So the beacon chain is just kind of like the general, right? The general knows what the each of the individual units are doing, and then the units kind of do their own thing. So basically, the way this fits in is the beacon chain is a blockchain. In fact, each of the shard chains is, and the beacon chain is a blockchain by itself. Mm-hmm. So the beacon chain as a blockchain uses a protocol, and that protocol is Gasper. So Gasper is literally the protocol of the beacon chain. Is it does that mean that Gasper is deciding on which data from the shards is included in its master chain? Right. So so the way we think about Gasper is like a Gasper is just a blockchain protocol, right? In a protocol transactions could be anything. It's just, you know, like in Bitcoin transactions are like A gave B five bucks. Yeah. So you should just think of the beacon chain as this is a chain where instead of we keeping things like A gave B five bucks, we we keep sentences that talk about the interactions or what is happening on the shard chain instead. Yeah. And then and that that completely yeah. black boxes the the actual content. Right? Like Bitcoin doesn't know the content of its blocks are money transactions. Mm. We just call them transactions because that's what people do in practice. I wonder, like, is there a, uh, this is, this is clearly like, I need to revisit ETH 2.0 because I kind of forget this, but is there like a, is there a state machine and a VM? Like, are you still, is that still the kind of makeup of the beacon chain? Do you know? So I think that's the makeup of Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0 because these shard chains have data too, right? And then that date, that data altogether comprises on what happens on the virtual machine. But again, the idea of this virtual machine is content. Like, like the virtual machine is this emergent property from the fact that people are uttering sentences like define this variable, add 500 to this variable Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, the blockchain structure doesn't know that it's running a virtual machine in the same sense it doesn't, the Bitcoin protocol doesn't know that it's doing this thing about transactions uh, between different accounts. Um, or, or like, sorry, a better way to say it is there's a version of Bitcoin that doesn't know that it is about these accounts, but uses the same consensus protocol, Nakamoto consensus. Cool. So, so I would say, yes, this, this will still be used to do the virtual machine stuff, but that's almost a, like orthogonal to the blockchain layer. I feel like what we did, we've covered what it is. We've covered the different parts. We talked about the the difference or how it improved on what was there before. Is there anything else on Gasper that you think we should mention or say? Kind of more to the end of that part. I shouldn't forget to give a shout out to my students. Diego Hernandez, Thor Kampefner, Kim Pham, George Chow, Juan Sanchez, Ju Hyuk Sin, and Ying Wang. They've done a great job, and a lot of them have graduated and are doing other cool things right now. Cool. What was the biggest challenge you faced on Gasper? I think the hardest thing I bumped into while doing this is, as you know, I was like drafting this paper, right? I realized, okay, we have this skeleton of kind of the, the protocol, but then there's like actual implementation details 
when when you know when the thing hits code, which is there's like some other considerations. Like there was this um the main thing I'm thinking of is in the ETH specs or at least planned specs, because these things change, there's this idea of a attestation inclusion delay. Which are these attestations, which is, you know, kind of like the messages we were talking about earlier when we we're defining ghosts, for various reasons, um, for, for other reasons, like incentive reasons, they might not want to include an attestation as a message until a delay, like a couple, a few slots or, you know, or even one epic has passed. It's like a sliding scale that you can use, right? Will this affect the proofs we have here? Definitely. And now consider like five of these patches. You don't know how well these patches will like play with each other or play with your main thing. Will they actually change our safety and liveness guarantees on everything? That's very possible. And it's not, it's not, it's not scalable to like write a proof of like, okay, for each subset of these patches, do our safety and liveness things still hold? I actually found that to be difficult. It's like, Something that looks like an innocuous patch, how, how much does that influence your safety and liveness concerns? That's why, um, my answer to your question, which is not really a direct answer, I admit, is something like, I think the big problem with using consensus is we can always only say things about this main skeleton of your protocols, but a lot of the real life safety and liveness concerns may actually come from these little patches that people make, especially patches done by developers or organizations that did not really read your consensus paper. I mean, not to keep making the analogies to machine learning, but the theory is pretty useless relative to the practice, right? And everything people do in practice is completely unfounded theoretically, Um, at least from like an analysis perspective. Like, I don't know, like some of those things shouldn't converge, but like, you know, they work good enough for evil's government face tracking. <laughs> um, That's why I but, think, yeah, like the biggest things here are going to be like, again, using Ethereum's point of view, but also other blockchains, Ethereum governance, right? What is the flow chart of introducing a patch to your protocol? How does a community decide uh, or how does a community put input in this? And how do the devs decide whether to push something like I think these things are actually more interesting from a holistic point of view than like, um, oh, what big ideas in consensus did we or did we not use? I feel that's like a small part. So I, I think we, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask a little bit about what you're working on now, because you had sort of mentioned that at the beginning. So, the, you know, we're putting kind of Gasper aside. What's the topic you work on today? So the topic I'm working on now and with the co-PI being Dashiell Fryer from my institution, SJSU, who's a game theorist. And that's actually an exciting direction, right? Because I was like the main person before, but now I brought in at least one other mathematician and an actual game theorist on a game theory problem, which is exciting, is we were studying the, we are studying the game theoretical properties of the proof of custody game, which is kind of this, which is the game theoretical structure of the Ethereum 2.0 sharding design so basically when you when you shard the short of it is when you shard not all the validators are downloading all the data in fact each validator only downloads one nth of the data on average where n is the number of shards but now you will kind of want a system where 
they can be sure that the other data is actually being downloaded by other validators. This is the this is kind of data availability problem. And this ties into a couple of other problems that are sometimes confounded with data availability, but is slightly orthogonal. For example, the data retrievability problem. Because not only do you want to know the data is available, maybe you want to be able to see it in the worst case, right? Like something bad mm-hmm. happening. So um, there's some game theory design around it, and we're kind of analyzing the Nash equilibria of that game theory. And this, again, game theory is very... Um, is very understandable for undergrads. So I think this is a really good fit for an undergrad project. And I would love to be able to summarize kind of like um, the end of this project when when it's finished. And that should be cool. soon, actually. Well, I think, you know, once that work comes out, definitely send it our way. And yeah. uh, maybe we have you on again to talk about that then. <laughs> yeah, that might be fun. I get to insert a lot more of my crackpot philosophical and political <laughs> ideas with Tarun because I think we have a lot of that in common so yeah cool. well that's why I never went to academia <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well yeah. thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this with all of us uh and yeah helping us to kind of get a little deeper into consensus algorithms uh learning about Casper Ghost Gasper and all the and also I guess all the work you've been doing on kind of education and research, thinking outside the box. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And Tarun, thanks for joining again as a co-host. No problem. Always, always love being on, on podcasts. Cool. All right. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.